You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your authoritative host, Abraham. And I will be your completely compliant co-host, Shane. Obedient. Obedient, even. (laughs) Sorry, I said the wrong word. Obedient. An important (laughs) distinction that we will get to, but how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Good. I'm so glad. So if you are joining us for the first time, we are a psychology podcast and we like to talk about cool psychology things. So we take sort of these esoteric topics and make them easy to understand, or at least we try to. That's my goal anyway. Yeah, that's the goal. I mean, and and we try to do that in like a conversational way, but also giving you information and nuggets of of trivia and stuff that you can kind of walk away with and maybe understand the phenomenon in your world a little bit more. So with that in mind, let's dive right into this topic because there's a lot of ground to cover here and I'm excited to get into it and you will listen to me and do as I say. You will hear my words. That's right. (laughs) All right. Well, the dictionary defines obedient as the submissive to the restraint or command of authority hmm. and sane. that's how yeah. i decided i would deliver that because that's good it was the the cliche of starting with the dictionary's definition it just it was useful <laughs> to have and maybe distracting by my voice yeah i mean it works i mean we all we all heard it so far we have been perfectly obedient to your request at the beginning of this episode so The reason we do this and the reason we kind of give definitions is to kind of give you an idea of where we're going. And really, in order to unpack anything in a science, we have to have a good definition to start with. So the idea of being obedient is to be submissive to the restraint or command of authority is an important component to this entire discussion. So what is it and where does it cross the line? At what point in time does obedience become a problem? And that's some stuff that we're going to try to explore today. Well, another definition comes from the American Psychological Association from their website is the tendency for people to be, quote, willing to obey destructive orders that conflict with their moral principles and commit acts which they would not carry out on their own initiative, end quote. And that's not just obedience, obviously, but what we're talking about here is, as you mentioned, when people do things in the name of obedience that they might not otherwise do, particular things that are destructive or harmful, and then will turn around and say, I did it because they made me do it, or I was just following orders is sort of how that goes, right? Yeah, and we're going to get into all that, but here, what we want to really focus on is that one's behavior is rigidly devoted to the dictation of another who possesses authority over another. So our goal is going to be to kind of talk about what that looks like in the context of behavior in relation to authority. And specifically, it often results in behavior that deviates from the norm or moral regulations of an individual. So the idea is somebody was told to do something by somebody of power, of authority, or under some kind of coercion, which we're going to talk about. And it goes against that person's values or their wishes or any of those things that it's just something that the person wouldn't normally do. And we will not be talking about how to train dogs. Nope. Not today. Different topic. Different topic for a different day. We've got, there are better folks out there to talk about that. There are some some important distinctions to make between concepts that are related to obedience. So the website Very Well Mind discussed the differences between obedience and compliance and conformity. And compliance, I think, is one that a lot of people are familiar with, particularly in sort of the human service industry, the human service work that like what we do yeah. with individuals who are, that we serve, the clients that we serve. And when discussing social groups, for example, and and this definition borders on a sort of perspective of 
they were willing to comply, you know, that they were willing to follow a direction of some sort. And so we have obedience as a form of social influence that involves performing an action under the authority of a figure. And so that's related to that that dictionary definition. I gave him a very cool voice. <laughs> and then we have <laughs> compliance, which they describe as changing your behavior at the request of another person. So again, sort of more voluntary. And then conformity, which is altering your behavior to go along with the rest of the group. So some different definitions that are important to distinguish because that's when we're talking about this this whole concept of crossing the line, it really falls into that obedience category. And you'll see key indicators here that like compliance is simply just being asked to do something and you do it, right? Like that's an easy, that's not necessarily an issue of authority. That could be like Abraham and I kind of having a conversation and being peers and me asking for a favor and him complying with that favor. Like that is kind of what compliance looks like. That's t- That tends to be mutually agreed upon in some way, but obedience is not necessarily like that. There is some kind of like maybe penalty or punishment, or there is some kind of overhanging contingency in place that is going to force somebody into a particular type of behavior. So let's go ahead and look at this through a lens of our friend Quentin Tarantino in his film Pulp Fiction, the 1994 crime drama that we all have come to love that doesn't really have a plot that people kind of forget what the plot is because there are so many subplots, it gets a little bit bonkers. But here's a quote. The lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster, and his wife, and a pair of diner bandits intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption, end quote. So if you're not familiar with Pulp Fiction, that's what it is. That's what it's all about. Yeah, so just for those of you who haven't seen that movie, very good movie. I definitely recommend it. Not part of my official recommendations for today, but I like it. And so with respect to this topic of obedience, we're talking about a particular scene in the movie Spoiler for those of you who want to go watch it. But there are these two characters, Jules and Vincent, and they pay a visit to their business partner, Big Brain Brett and friends on behalf of their boss, Marcellus Wallace. You do remember your business partner, Marcellus Wallace, right? (laughs) Oh, man, what a good what a good scene. So to kind of highlight the differences in the concepts that we're talking about with obedience, obedience is the presence of Jules and Vincent paying this visit at the direction of their boss, Marcellus Wallace, presumably with a threatening alternative if they refuse. Do you remember him? Right. Say say what again? Say (laughs) what again? (laughs) Well delivered. Compliance in this case would be Brett offering up his Sprite when Jules so politely asks, do you mind if I have some of your tasty beverage to wash this down with? (laughs) Royale with cheese. They call it a Royale with cheese. And then conformity in this scene would be any underlying behavior that Jules and Vincent in an effort to be socially accepted by another, like such as their in-depth discussions on sexual acts and cheeseburgers, all of those things kind of like matching the behavior of the folks they're trying to talk with, right? They are actually changing their behavior to match the folks that they're interacting with. Another way of just thinking about this distinction here is an obedience involves an order. Where conformity involves a request. There's a specific request involved. Yeah, in obedience, you're obeying someone of a higher status. Whereas with conformity, you are just going along with people of equal status. And then finally, in obedience, this relies on the sort of social power dynamic. Right. And where conformity relies on social acceptance or approval. So you can see how you wouldn't describe someone who is just following orders as conforming as much as you would describe them as obedient. But someone who is changing their behavior to go along with the group might still be called conforming, but wouldn't be called obedient. That makes sense. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So to kind of dig further into these three concepts, Lumen Learning defines these three concepts slightly different, like kind of what we've talked about. They, They give a little bit different impression, but this allows us to behaviorally analyze them 
even though they're sometimes described as choices. So obedience, according to Lumen Learning, is changing your behavior to please an authority figure or to avoid aversive consequences, which, you know, makes sense. Like maybe you're engaging in behavior to get praise or social interactions from that authority figure or to avoid getting punished or some kind of painful consequence or some kind of something you dislike, right? So, so obedience is going to kind of change your behavior based on the request or the, the preferences or the context of the authority figure. And then conformity coming back to this is changing your behavior to go along with the group, even if you don't necessarily agree with the group. And this is also related to this concept of get social praise as you sort of conform to the norms of a particular group, you avoid being ostracized by the group, that sort of thing. So that's the sort of conformity angle here. Right. And then with the compliance angle, kind of going back to that, it's just going along with a request or a demand. And so this is a pretty straight up, pretty easy formula to follow, right? Like a boss or even a peer or somebody asks you to do something and you do it and maybe you get praise for it. Maybe you get some kind of reward or a bonus for it. Maybe you avoid social ostracization at some point in time. But for the most part, that compliance is simply there's a request, you complete it and you get to move on. All right. So this is a perfect time, I think, to talk about Nazis. It's such a turn, but here we are. So we'll dig into some sort of specific examples of this in history. So again, just trying to really create the the context here that what we're what we're doing is we're talking about this phenomenon of people who are following orders to a point that's probably beyond what they would have ever done just sort of on their own, right? And using history to help give the specific examples that guide sort of where we where we arrive at with this this concept today. Specifically, to talk about Nazis, the Nazi superior orders defense, or I did what I was told, or I was just following orders, is something that you'll hear a lot. Uh, a lot of folks who were kind of conscripted to different you know, Nazi camps and different military bases were often, when they would get brought to trial or they would get brought to charges, they would say, I was just following orders. I just did what I was told, even though they did some really horrific things. So... In 1962, during the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was considered kind of the architect of the Holocaust, like if Hitler was the ideas guy, then Adolf was the guy, like the engineer. And so he contributed to the deportation of Jews in World War II, and he used the defense that he was simply following orders from his superiors and thus not responsible for the horrific acts that he facilitated. So he made the argument that he was not responsible for what happened to those folks. First of all, wrong. (laughs) Start there. But second of all, this kind of set a precedent. This really, I mean, not a precedent, but this definitely kind of was one of the more clear, glaring examples of how obedience or like the argument for obedience could have been played out in a court of law. Right. Yeah. I was thinking of a joke that that comes from a headline that's something like a Nazi and a proud boy supporter die in murder suicide. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. 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 That's a good one. Following the tribunal. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So actually, here's a cool story, too. Like, this is one of my favorite stories, and and this will tie back to my recommendations, is Adolf Eichmann had fled Nazi Germany after all that happened, right? So he was obedient to his superiors, but then he fled Nazi Germany and hung out in South America. And in his capture, they had to extradite him from South America, like in doing all this like clandestine spy stuff. They had to the the group that, that got him out of there actually like built a special car and followed him around for four days once they discovered him. And he gets off his bus at night one evening to walk home. He's walking home to his family in this like poor village. And these folks pull up in this car, grab him, sedate him, stuff him in the trunk and fly him all the way back to to Israel to put him on trial. And his family had no idea where he went until he was on trial. Wow. That's intense. What a life. Yeah. It is kind of wild. It was kind of wild. Like he was just, he was 
supposed to come home, just didn't show up. And they found out, oh, he got extradited because he was not a great person. So if you needed justice in this moment, that was one of those things. I think there's definitely there have been a lot of conversations before, during and since this has happened with with the Nazis and and the trials and and everything. But this is certainly something that has come up recently as well, is the idea that to do nothing is to be complicit. Right. And I think that there are certainly, and I think the law would recognize various gradients of guilt and, I guess, culpability in some of these acts when what you did was actively participate or sit idly by and do nothing while something bad happened. And I think a lot of people definitely try and point out that doing nothing is being complicit. And I think they're not wrong. And it is, I think personally less than doing active harm, but the point being, and I think their only intention is to raise the issue of like, if everybody does nothing, then these things keep going and somebody's got to stand up and be willing to risk themselves to step in these situations where something terrible is happening. And so I think I want to, you know, just thinking of this as, compassionately as possible i would feel a little bit frozen in a moment where there was some trouble happening and i would like to believe that i would have the courage to act in that that moment but i might have to work myself up to it because that's a that's a tough call and it's 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 tough to see those things and to try and imagine being in a situation like that yeah absolutely i mean i cannot imagine the pressure of being under threat of death essentially right like i mean that's essentially what it is it, it becomes a threat of death and so because of that, I would like to think that I would stand up and do the right thing. And I, and I would hope so, too. But it, it's hard to say because I have never personally been under that type of threat. And all this is to say, just going back to this idea that there are those who participated or were involved in these in things like Nazi Germany and et, et cetera, that would be often regarded as being culpable to this because they didn't try and stop it. I do understand. Like, I do understand the anger about people who stood by and did nothing. And I also understand those people feeling like, I did nothing, and so I should be treated innocently. And it, I think that there's you just have to take it on a case-by-case basis and look at the specific circumstantial variables. But to kind of further illustrate this, too, you know, obedience is not just simply related to Nazis following orders or military. So <laughs> it doesn't. And no, there's other there's other contexts in which this might occur. So let's talk about the Milgram experiment for a little bit. So if you're not familiar with this in the 1960s, there was an experiment at Yale by Stanley Milgram to test the effects of punishment on learning, partially in an effort to experimentally test the claims of the Nazi soldiers. So kind of going back to, oh, they're making this claim. Let's go ahead and do an experiment on this and see if it's actually accurate or verifiable. Right. And so Milgram wanted to see if the soldiers were somehow different than other humans, but he ultimately learned that the gradual effects of obedience given an authority figure in that context, there's an authority figure and obedience to that authority figure can lead to chilling outcomes if left unrestrained. So human beings tend to obey in these types of contexts. Right. And we did talk about this a little bit in our episode on ethics, but we'll just describe briefly what this experiment consisted of. So Essentially, there was a teacher who was tasked with delivering word pair lessons and delivering a shock that ranged from 15 to 450 volts. And the teacher was the actual participant in the study. They didn't know that. These people didn't know that they were participants. They thought that the person that they were trying to teach was the participant, right? Right. And every time that the person they were trying to teach made an error, they actually made that error on purpose. And the the person that, that was, again, they were sort of the recipient they were the one being taught, was actually an actor. And what they did is they they pretended 
and simulated this painful response to the shock that the quote-unquote teacher was forced to deliver. And the goal of the experiment was to see how far these participants who were acting as teachers would go in ratcheting up the volts of those shocks. And in the first iteration of this experiment, 65% obeyed the commands of the person who was like the, the experimenter standing there in like a white coat telling them what to do to go all the way to the 450 volts. And these participants were just sort of everyday folks that you'd find on the street who were recruited for this study. And so the question here was how much pain would someone inflict on another person because they were ordered to do so by some authority figure, in this case, someone who is like a scientist, and evaluate then how far obedience can be sort of pushed. Within this discussion and within all of this, they're really looking at a threshold of acceptance of authority to govern one's actions. They want to see how far somebody can go. And the authority, quote unquote, redefines what is right or wrong. So you've got this experimenter that's standing over your shoulder being like, no, this person needs to learn this. So go ahead and deliver that shock, which in that context sounds right to the person who's not the expert or not the authority or just kind of the lay person showing up. Right. Like this is somebody who has no experience in this and is is not really like doesn't really know what's going on. So you but you've got an authority figure who is confident in what they're saying and, and making that decision for them. And this seems similar to how allegiances seem to shift during coercive hostage incidents, right? So you'll see this kind of happen, which lead to effects of Stockholm syndrome. You know, if you've got Patty Hearst, who's in a scenario who is under coercion, under authority. So it goes from being, I don't want to do this to, I need to do this. I have to do this. I'm just doing what I'm told partially to survive. But the other part is you start shifting allegiances to kind of accommodate that behavior. Or did she? Or did she? Dun, dun, dun. So actually specific to the, the Stockholm syndrome, there is an argument replacing the pitiful perspective of those effects with an alternative that saw behavior as strategic, right? So it wasn't just coercive or it wasn't just that they were they were obeying authority. It was that it was a survival aspect trying to get out of that situation. Now, you might argue that this comes back to the same idea of coercion, but instead of this acute event like being held hostage, it's occurring in this sort of more predictable and maybe even more common relationship. So, for example, this could happen in workplace, family, politics, education, religion, etc. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have an authoritative figure, you have the opportunity for this obedience dynamic to form where one could be pushed across a line. Thus, those in authority dictate now what is right and wrong, and they provide the instructions on various methods to uphold what is what they then describe as the value, what is being valued as right and wrong. So this experiment in particular, the Milgram experiment, provided the world with more insight into how the most heinous of behavior can occur on behalf of a cause and how normal people can actually, or, or lay people, can actually get caught in the throes of those types of events, right? And specifically precursors that initiate that slippery slope. So Milgram's experiments showed how seemingly benign moral judgment or kind of just small momentary moments in that specific teaching opportunity, it can escalate to much more complicated contingencies with harsher consequences, given the right context, given the right authority and given the right contingencies. There were many follow up studies to this that showed varying degrees of the extent to which this might occur. And some people also I guess trying to suggest that the results were not so robust and clear cut as they seemed in the first experiment, that there were maybe some confounding variables. We're not going to get into that for the rest of this discussion, but it is certainly worth revisiting at some point if we haven't already. I don't remember. Have we done an episode on this? Do you recall? I don't think we've done one yet. No, I don't think we have either. I think we've only mentioned it 
with respect to other topics. Yeah. So it's probably worth doing a deep dive to really talk through the all the different experiments and what was found because there were some really interesting findings that did illuminate that really only happens under these conditions or it does happen but only to this extent or you could push it even further if you if you manipulated these variables. So anyway, a topic, a discussion for a future episode. But let's turn instead to the next extraordinarily famous of all psychological research, particularly in the United States, because, you know, we're U.S. centric, I guess. Yeah. And that's the Stanford prison experiment. Oh, Philip Zimbardo. So a social psychologist, Philip Zimbardo, staged an experiment assigning participants to play the role of either a prison guard or a prisoner. And, and you've probably if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably pretty familiar with it. But so we're going to kind of right. like hit the main points. The participants in this fell so deeply into these roles that their behavior crossed an unsafe threshold and the experiment was terminated six days into it, despite being planned to last two weeks. So they didn't even make it 50% of the way before they were like, nope, can't do this. Human beings cannot handle this kind of authority or pressure. It was pretty wild to see like kind of the extent to which they fell into these roles too. It puts the student in the hole. (laughs) They really did a lot. It puts the lotion on its skin. (laughs) So... When you start thinking about this, there are some moments where you see some really graphic and clear examples of psychological abuse, harassment, and legitimately physical torture. I mean, to the degree that Phillips and Bardo, from what I understand or what I remember, wasn't even the one that terminated it. He had to have somebody else come in and be like, you have to stop this before it was officially terminated at the university. And many people pointed out that one of the specific elements of this study that was sort of a, an important take home was how quickly this escalated to to such a level suggesting that this the environmental factors were really influential in determining how the the students or how how the, the the participants behaved in this experiment those who had authority and those who didn't and how they escalated their treatment of one another to be extremely violent and and potentially damaging in many of the situations so in this case I think there was probably some power dynamics within the groups, but also power dynamics, at least originally from the experimenter to the group, similar to Milgram. So within that context, kind of talking about the environment, there is something to be said about having an authority figure in place and what that means for the participant of the actions. Right. And so this is where we have to talk a little bit about the idea of coercion. Coercion occurs. You know, we essentially know that coercion is a result of somebody kind of pressuring somebody else with using aversive conditions or something along those lines to influence behavior. That's kind of a general rule. But in Scientific American, a study was done in the mid 2010s at the University College London and Université Libre de Bruxelles in Belgium. I can't say any of that in a real. That was was great. That was the best French (laughs) accent ever. (laughs) They studied the disconnect that can arise between one's actions from the external effects of those actions. So what they were trying to discover here was, and they were trying to look at this idea of coercion and really how there was a disconnect between how somebody might behave and some of those other effects that might go along with it. So there was an updated study that incorporated real shocks and more of a focus on the presence of the experimenter acting as the third party who was the authority figure delivering orders. Alternatively, other conditions had an experimenter present, but one who was not giving any direction whatsoever. So you had sort of this dummy in the corner 
or this person who was breathing down your neck. Right. And so what they found was when coercion was involved, the agents experienced less agency or responsibility over their actions and outcomes, as if the responsibility was shifted to the authority figure above, that person that was breathing down their neck and delivering the orders. Similarly, they observed via EEG measurement that brain activity was dampened under coercive conditions, which meant that they weren't using as much of their brain or really their capacities during that moment. As opposed to being hired during more autonomous conditions where they're able to kind of think and make decisions on their own without an authority figure. So their brain was wet. Their brain was wet. Wetter. Wetter. <laughs> we want dry brains. That's how I'm understanding. I'm interpreting this. Drier, I guess. I don't. Dryish. That's the way. It, yes. Dampened is a funny word. It is. <laughs> I think <laughs> metaphorically, I'm just playing with the fact that, of course, they metaphorically mean it was decreased. But this, there is this interesting element here that we've been describing which is that what comes with the obedience to authority is a relinquishment of one's responsibility by thinking like okay like i'm gonna do this because they're telling me to do this it's not my fault if something bad happens because someone else here is sort of handing down the instructions and that's exactly what we're trying to talk about here is why that happens and what's going on here now the implication that of what shane you were just describing is that while the researchers were able to note that there were slight differences in behavior and those physiological measurements between what you might consider the coercive group and the free agent group, it did not necessarily suggest exonerating those soldiers, right? It's just a way to explain the actions, not necessarily condone them. So the researchers offer that, if anything, it may suggest that those who deliver heinous orders bear more responsibility than their subordinates, but doesn't necessarily mean the subordinates bear no responsibility, right? And that's actually an important distinction here uh, that we've actually we've made this many times on the show is the difference between this explaining and condoning. There's interesting parallels to work that's been done in other fields, particularly when it comes to when we talk about severe problem behavior or criminal activity. The difference between these things is really important. So we do not falsely accuse the people who take the position like we do with sympathizing or exonerating people who exhibit these very destructive and often illegal behaviors is we're trying to say, like, we understand why it happens. We're not saying it's okay, but we need to understand why. We need to understand the how. We need to understand the conditions under which this behavior happens. And oftentimes that means that we do look at people through a lens of, like, I know that you did this for a reason, and to you that even may have seemed like a good reason, it was still not okay, you know? Right. And so there's, we are never, we're never condoning those inappropriate behaviors by trying to understand it. But I think not trying to understand it and simply appear to be zealous by condemning someone just flat out. Like going actually going back to our, our episode on cancel culture without trying to understand it and simply just flat out cutting, you know, cutting the head off, if you will, or just saying like, no, like you, you need the heart, you deserve the harshest judgment. Then we actually, we prevent ourselves from learning anything about that situation and from doing anything differently in the future that might prevent other similar situations from arising. I couldn't have said it better myself. I was quite the monologue, so I had many opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's important, right? Like we have to understand what's going on to better serve the population, right? To better serve humanity, to better serve people that we're trying to help. And so if we can't explain how a phenomenon occurs, then we'll never be able to fix it. We'll never be able to solve it. That issue will continue to come up and history will repeat itself. So now let's take a second to, we're going to pivot a little bit and talk about 
the idea of the military. Okay. So like, and this is going to be kind of a, a big segment, but we do want to talk about this because originally the, the issue with the Nazis and I was just following orders is something that's present in the context of being a soldier. So certain orders are presented to a soldier particularly to a low-ranking, inexperienced one, maybe an 18-year-old kid that just joined the military, maybe they're conscripted, whatever it is, but they're, they've joined it and there's a dilemma, right? So especially in more unforgiving countries or, or unforgiving circumstances, if you disobey an order and risk being shot on the spot, you can, that, that is something you put yourself in peril if you, if you do disobey an order or you risk fulfilling an order that may be questionable it may be a problem and you find yourself convicted of a war crime. So in both of those scenarios, it's kind of lose, lose. So what do you do? That's, that's quite an unpleasant conundrum to be in. Yeah. I mean, that's, this is a sort of classic between a rock and a hard place situation where you're faced with two unpleasant outcomes, like sort of damned if you do damned, if you don't. And both of those options, I guess can like really, they can be very impactful in terms of how you sort of are mentally dealing with this and how stressed you're feeling and that sort of thing. Not to mention people who are already pretty high strung and you like put them in a situation where they have to they face two two horrible choices. And I think that, you know, comedy shows will use this where they'll have a character who's super high strung and then force them into a situation where they have to make a choice between two terrible outcomes for a comedic effect. But like that's you know, it's a real thing. So yeah. That's just one of the considerations here in terms of understanding what a soldier is faced with when they're put in a situation of doing something that they might think is questionable and i think part of the reason that they are not always told why they're doing what they're doing is to give them plausible deniability so they may not understand the full impact of what they're doing and simply be like i had i had no idea i was just following orders and that might be a strategic decision to not tell them so that they can not also be held responsible it makes it easier to make a decision or make a choice right or not have to right if you don't have all the pieces or the, or the context i mean we talk about this all the time where where the minute that you add more information to a context, it's going to change your decision, right? I mean, that's any ethical decision-making model. Like if I have this information and this is the only information I have, this is the decision I would make. Add another context, add another layer, and then now my decision gets exponentially more complicated. So the less information I have, and especially coming from an authority figure, the easier it is to follow through on that order. All right. So we we have some more on this about just sort of how, how to treat soldiers and, and how they behave in war. And in 1944, there was a piece published by Harvard criminal law and criminology professor Sheldon Gluek. Gluek, maybe? I'm going to say Gluek. Yeah. yeah, we'll say Gluek. And this was entitled, What Shall Be Done With the War Criminals? But as a question, I, I said it as a statement. What should be done with the war criminals? <laughs> is, what should be done with the war criminals? There you go. That's how you'd say it. <laughs> and in this book, he analyzes this debate while bringing in the perspective from several ally militaries as well. So the American articles of war actually, quote, protect a soldier or officer who disobeys an obviously unlawful command, end quote. And so this might obviously get more convoluted when the soldier is not fully informed, especially in the heat of the moment of the arguments of both sides of the decision. So essentially what this says is as a soldier is protected for disobeying an order that is legitimately unlawful, right? If they are asked to do something really heinous, if they are asked to commit a war crime, American soldiers are protected in disobeying that direct order. And actually, I think that there's being very cynical and jaded and just thinking about a potential reason this might be phrased the way it is, is that it's possible that this is actually trying to protect the people at the top. And the reason being that they're, they're sort of trying to have their cake and eat it too, where they're, I think they're making the case of soldiers should not 
act on things that are illegal or immoral or are against the Geneva Convention, whatever. They should, you know, the soldiers should not do things that they know to be wrong. And if we don't tell them what they're doing, but we just have them do it and without any context, then they aren't necessarily in a position where they then have to stand up the authority figure, which means the authority figure is the one who is going to bear the responsibility, but also isn't going to be told no. Right. And so that's just, that's the cynical side of me seeing what's happening here. That's the, but that's people. That's people. All right. There's also this American view and there are several examples of soldiers that commit illegal crimes, such as looting goods, assaulting and robbing a, a ship crew. And these have resulted in convictions of the soldiers with an emphasis that the commander cannot necessarily compel an inferior to commit illegal acts. However, some modern cases do grant immunity to a soldier if the order was not palpably or clearly illegal. As I said, if they don't tell them and they don't have a context, then they have that plausible deniability. And this obvious gray area has resulted in continuous debate over the matter, as you might imagine. So people sort of weigh in like, how should we address and use this system? It gets a little bit complicated. Now, there is an English view of this, right? So the English view favors the soldier in the matter. So in a particular case during the Boer War, a soldier was ordered to execute a native who was not of resourceful assistance. So basically they were ordered to execute somebody that wasn't benefiting the troop or the, the camp or anything like that. And the court later acquitted him stating that he believed he was fulfilling his duty and that the order was not so clearly illegal. So they erred on the side of the soldier and not necessarily on the orders or the authority in that context. This is the motto of Amazon warehouse also. <laughs> I mean, is it? <laughs> Amazon's kind of a funny space. Just kidding. All right. So we've talked about the American view, the English view, there's, of course, the German view, because those are the only three countries, I believe. Yeah. And in, in a case known as the Landovery Castle case, submarine officers claim to have obeyed orders to sink lifeboats, which, man, that is messed up stuff. Oh. And the German Supreme Court later determined that the soldiers should have been able to discriminate the difference if such an order is universally known to everybody, including also the accused, to be, without any doubt whatever, against the law. And this brings up obvious questions about hindsight, split decisions in the moment, and that sort of gray area of legality given context and backgrounds around the globe. So, you know, people can't even agree on Coke and Pepsi, BMW or Mercedes, if the world is flat or not. <laughs> right. <It's> not. <laughs> so in this case, you know, just considering how might every soldier in existence be expected to wade through the ethics of every decision when they're being pressured by an authority figure. And it's easy to muse about this from our armchairs, but in, when you're in the midst of a battle, it might be a lot more difficult, however egregious the action may seem, to make that quick determination and make the right choice. And so this is actually one of those areas where I feel like just generally really clear ethical guidelines become helpful when you're sort of teaching people these decision trees about like what guidance can we provide in terms of when you're in a situation and rather than try and list every single situation, list some general guidelines of like, this should be what your order of conduct is like. And then we're, we're able to hopefully prevent things like this where people can then just say, well, like, I didn't, I didn't know. Sorry. I blew up your house, man. Like I, so the guy told me I should. And I was like, okay. Right. Not that that's how that ever goes, but you know. Yeah. And so within all this, I mean, obviously it's a complex topic, right? Obedience in itself is a complex topic. So Gluick's proposed rule goes something like this quote, 
The act of a soldier in obedience to a military order of his superior is not justifiable if, when he committed it, he either actually knew or, under the circumstances, had reasonable grounds for knowing that the act ordered is illegal either under the laws and customs of warfare or under the criminal law of his country, and when the two systems clash, the former shall prevail. End quote. So that's a mouthful. But basically what it says is that, first of all, it protects against being bound by the unusual and inhumane laws of some countries today. And back then, basically that person is a soldier of a home country. They should be acting in accordance with the laws and know the laws of their home country and kind of adhere to those where they're at in that type of wartime context is, is one way that the one thing that they're kind of hinting at here. Yeah. And I think thinking of this sort of scientifically and, and psychologically, this definition still isn't complete. It does warrant further discussion about proving that one knew the context and implications of their actions in the moment. I think there just needs to be more clarity around some of the the phrases and conditions of the terms that he said, but nevertheless gives us at least a starting place. And the American legal system breaks this down with different convictions for manslaughter. So for example, there's like premeditated murder, conspiracy, first degree, secondary, et cetera. And these different ways of sort of categorizing these. And, and part of it, I think is that the intent here is really important because that helps to determine whether or not it's likely to occur again and like how dangerous that person is to other people. Yep, absolutely. And one thing too that often gets brought up in this is the idea of intent. And so we use intent in context to exonerate and more heavily convict people sometimes. So so this gets to be a little bit complicated because we can't observe intent. We can't observe those things to to be able to say that this person meant to do something or not. And that makes kind of the judgment and passing of the rules a little bit more complex in those contexts. All right. So the ruling here, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with these people who are saying that they're claiming orders, particularly in these situations where there is a clear line of authority and clear expectations to, to obey authority figures? And I mean, the suggestion provided by Gluek seems like a good start, right? Yeah. It's not perfect, but it allows, at least gives us some direction and guidance. Maybe there is no easy answer. Maybe there is no clear way of defining this. And it just always has to be on a case by case basis. It'd be nice if there was, and we could set some clear expectations, but sometimes things are just so complicated that getting there is just, it's too convoluted. Like you wouldn't be able to say anything clearly enough to result in actions that were consistent with the kind of values that society has at the time, probably at least in part because our values do shift. So, right. Anyway, this is actually <laughs> exemplified in a really fun episode of black mirror. Do you watch that TV show? I started watching like the first episode and ended up not finishing it. So like, I, I haven't even really started the series. Wow. I'll say for myself, everyone that I know told me don't watch the first episode because it's terrible in some ways and just skip to the next one. And because it's, every episode stands on its own and they don't ever refer to or build on each other in any way whatsoever that it didn't matter to skip the first episode. And so I did. And I love the show. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've heard it's great. Yeah. I've still never seen the first episode. Huh? Interesting. Interesting. But anyway, there's this great episode called men against fire. And this is this extreme, but potentially conceivable situation where a soldier, many soldiers really, but one in particular is tasked with exterminating these, what are described as mutated humans. He basically is given these neural implants that makes it easier for him to hunt, to identify the enemy and hunt them down. But the twist in the episode, some spoiler alert for both you and anybody listening, because <laughs> this is a really good twist. So skip like 30 seconds ahead. If you want to, if you haven't seen this and you still want to, 
the twist in the episode comes to the to the idea that the implant actually what it does is these people that they're fighting they're not mutated they're actually normal humans but the implant causes them to appear as these disgusting mutated horrific humans but they're actually just these people who have been selected for genocide by some ruling party as part of a eugenics movement Oof. and so they're totally helpless normal innocent people who are just trying to survive and these soldiers think that they're these like monstrous evil i guess aggressive people that have been mutated and so they're going through exterminating them thinking that they're really doing good here not aware of what's going on and i think what happens is somebody's implant gets like knocked loose or it stops working and he like all of a sudden sees like like i was just chasing this monster and now i see just like this innocent woman in front of me like what's going on anyway the question here is who deserves the blame like does should the soldier receive the blame for being tricked into and coerced into doing this I feel like that sounds like a really good example of how coercion might work. You know, you've got a soldier who is like following orders, who is under authority, who is given directives. Like, I mean, there's there's so much stuff to unpack there. But, you know, what's scary about that is it doesn't that's not out of the realm of reality. Right. Like that is something that could legitimately happen or has happened. I mean, the Holocaust is a perfect example of how that happened. You had groups of people who were probably innocent within that context doing horrific things because they were taught to believe that a certain group of people were monsters. They were holding those people accountable for, for crimes they never committed. And they did all these horrific acts under the guise in the shield and the veil of propaganda and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's something that we have seen probably not to that technological advancement, but we have seen that happen in, in human history. You're exactly right with the propaganda angle of this is like, is a neural implant so substantially different from convincing somebody that a group of people are monsters to the point where they feel no remorse in slaughtering them. Right. I think that there is a very fine line there, if any at all, you know, maybe an arbitrary line and that it basically is the same, the same way. So anyway, in that show, obviously the situation employs a lot of deception, but it is still similar to this idea here, as I just said, and the discussion of blame and responsibility is still one that, that we would have if this were a real situation. And if anything, as in the episode, the guilt and shame that the shoulder shifts back on himself upon discovering the truth is arguably worse than the punishment that he might receive from people who are then holding him accountable at trial. But maybe not, you know, and I think at this point, in my opinion, it's always worth deferring to the victims and seeing like what what needs to happen to make their lives better. And sometimes it's like, make sure that they never see this person again. They need to feel like this person, some people are very forgiving, you know, and I think it's, it's worth considering like what the, again, the likelihood of someone's that someone will reoffend and considering the victim's perspective on that. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the idea of like kind of military context and we did provide the example of the experimenter, but there are some similar effects in different contexts. And it's important to know because there are so many spaces where authority figures might be in place that are going to result in obedience to damaging or harmful policies or carrying out orders. I mean, one that we immediately think of actually to kind of preface this, you're going to see this type of effect anywhere where there's a staunch and clear authority figure. You're going to see these types of things to varying degrees, but you're going to see obedience, quote unquote, in these different contexts, wherever there is an, an authority figure. Yeah. I mean, we can probably agree on that, right? I mean, look at Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> that was like one of the strangest phenomenon. Like one of my favorite stories is like hearing people leaving like used vegetables in movie theaters after like movie theater people would have to clean up 
the theaters and like would find like vegetables like that's disturbing people are interesting okay (laughs) so there are some examples of religious groups who do not need to be named where you had the highest authority instructing other people in the religious group to cover up or obscure or obfuscate or otherwise hide sex abuse that might have occurred inside that religious group. It's an awful situation. Hey, Abraham, what's obfuscate? Yeah, obfuscate. It actually means similar a similar thing to obscure. You can use it as a synonym for obscure. Uh, it is to make something unclear or to bewilder someone or make something, I guess, ambiguous in a way. But yeah, it just it just means to obscure is another way of saying that. Ah, that's a good word. That's a good word. So obviously in this situation, it's really bad, right? Religious groups doing cover-ups for very harmful practices and requesting that people as part of their groups or their churches or their clergy or whatever you want to call it are involved in that type of cover-up. And cover-ups, actually, this is this is kind of common across the board. Military is another similar one where you might have some pressure from authority figures to cover up things that a military may have done wrong, either a single soldier or a group of soldiers or an entire platoon. I don't know how to call different sizes of groups. A brigade. A brigade. There you go. The point being that people will obey those authority figures and then hide, destroy, or obscure the evidence of any wrongdoing from the military for some cases. And I'm not even necessarily saying the United States military as the specific example. I think this has happened probably in almost every military that's ever existed. This is not uniquely isolated to the United States. Terrorist acts, specifically, you'll have folks that that will follow the letter of the authority. They will follow specifically. They will do anything and everything they can for that authority in that belief system to be able to enact certain terrorist acts. And so whatever that belief system may be, whether it's American-centric or not, you'll see that happen kind of. There is an authority figure within that context, and they will provide direct orders that can be pretty harmful. That makes me think if you would describe the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th as being obedience or conformity, because there was someone who was directing action and there was also a lot of people who seemed to be joining in of their own accord. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. So, but I think that brings up an excellent point is how complex this really gets. Like when you really start thinking about this, there are authority figures. There are people speaking from podiums, telling people to do these awful things. And here we are, people have died as a result of, could it be obedience? Are these people not being held accountable? I mean, they're not being held accountable because that's just how the United States is. Sometimes they're not being held accountable, but, but should they be held accountable or is there something else going on? to look at within that context. So I think that's a perfect example and worthy of discussion looking at like, is it conformity? Is it compliance? Is it obedience? What is it? And that's actually another one of those examples where the, the direction was a lot of propaganda Mm -hmm. lies and propaganda and, and specific political maneuvering to get that. So, I mean, they sort of had the neural implant in a way, albeit a very silly neural implant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they got it from a Happy Meal. I think this is important too. Like we're going back to that conversation before, we are not condoning what happened. It is very, 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 very wrong. But to explain it, we have to evaluate it from these different contexts, right? We have to, in order to understand what happened, we have to dig into that. It is certainly not condonable. It is certainly not okay what happened. It's actually a really significant problem. But, and those folks should be held accountable. But there it is, it is important to look at the context by which it occurred. 
All right. So speaking of cults, <laughs> <laughs> there is an example of Jim Jones and People's Temple, where you, again, authority figure who is handing out directions and getting obedience from the followers. It's pretty unsettling, but you can hear the final tapes of the last day and hear people shouting out directions, people being obedient and people like actually forcing other people to be compliant. It's really kind of horrific. I don't recommend listening to it if you want to sleep at night. Yeah, I don't think I can stomach that one. That's a rough one. Also, universities and research, you'll see this happen where there's maybe cover ups. Maybe there are some different spaces where somebody is told to do something like maybe publish an article that says vaccines cause autism. And then it ends up not being a thing that should have happened. So you'll kind of hear those types of things. And I mean, that was done on his own volition. But sometimes universities will cover up different acts. Like you'll hear like harassment charges and and different things like that. That'll get covered up. Well, he was pressured just by money, not necessarily authority. (laughs) Hi-oh. Cash rules everything around me. How There is an authority there. Have you never listened to Wu-Tang, my friend? It did sound like you were about to launch into a full-on rap. That would have been fun. So close. So close. Of course, there's, as we've talked about, there's war, which includes the things like Nazis and then definitely every other military and things of that nature. And of course, police and instances of brutality, covering up brutality, and people who are following orders to commit brutal acts is definitely occurring there. There's just some more examples. Yeah. Another one, too, is organized crime, where you'll have henchmen that are willing to die for their bosses. And as a matter of fact, this kind of came to a head during the Mafia Commission trials with surprisingly, this was actually a pretty good thing with Rudy Giuliani in the 80s. He did like a full court press where he really went after these mafia bosses and the five families in New York and was able to change some of the laws and rules that held mafia bosses accountable for the actions of their henchmen. Because before it was just that their henchmen and they're like, their, their hitmen and all those folks that were committing the crimes were the ones getting charged and they can never pin any crimes on the bosses themselves who were giving down the direct orders. So with the mafia commission trials, they actually altered some of the language and got this law in place that held mafia bosses accountable for those actions. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about this, that it's funny to me in movies, I can understand when there's someone who is threatening to harm you if you don't follow their orders and then you maybe put yourself in harm's way but how often it's the case in movies that like simple security personnel or even just employees of a business will be cannon fodder for the bad guys or the heroes (laughs) and i'm just like who who honestly is ever willing to do that like maybe some people but almost any most people you know almost anybody is gonna say like take whatever you want leave me alone i don't care just let me go And that immediately brings us to our last example of Batman and his Robins, right? Like, so every one of his Robins is like under duress and really kind of operating in the space where he's, he's has children that he's training to fight and bring into, into a context where they're going to fight people, but also the people they're fighting are also just following orders. So everybody who's on black masks side is just getting rocked for what? It's just bizarre. Is Batman a bad guy? I think he might be. I think Gotham city needs to check the lead in its water just to oh, figure no. out what's going on. Yeah. All right. So we've been talking about sort of the fact that it happens and, and that whole list was not meant to meant to specifically throw anyone under the bus, but really to just give specific examples of situations in which we've clearly observed this sort of coercive obedience dynamic occurring and talking about sort of why this happens. And I think honestly, like there's several things here, like there's obviously threat of punishment, like that's very straightforward. But there's also some more things here where as humans, we are really good at sort of sticking to a set of rules or values or beliefs, 
right? And that these things can also help us understand how the, how these behaviors can start to occur independent of direct pressure from authority figure or some direct coercion because, and this gets at this propaganda angle really well is that fostering these beliefs in somebody is every bit as powerful as holding a gun to their head sometimes and getting them to act in such a way that they do your bidding without you having to threaten them in any way. And you're doing things that you probably know or should know or would have known at some point before they lay their propaganda on you that you probably would have known that this is wrong, very wrong, highly illegal and kind of bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, but I think that's important to note. Like like you said, like even with all that in place, like you still might follow a rule because it's in place and it's very clear that the folks around you are following the same rule or a similar rule or similar enough. Like there is there are so many other factors that go into following a rule that are just not simply you following the rule because you heard it. And this really comes back to the same thing of like how Nazi soldiers who had lived amongst Jews, like as neighbors and been friends all their lives prior, but then a person that they'd never met before, Adolf Hitler, rises to power and they maybe never meet at any point, but they tell that German citizen that their neighbor is their enemy. And then those people might actually turn against them, turn them in, report them to the Nazi authority. They might join the Nazi party. And they never had anything against them until they were exposed to that propaganda. And at some point, like it may have become more of this sort of authoritative, obedient relationship. But the power of understanding how people, how these beliefs and these rules and these values are sort of fostered and created and disseminated amongst a group of people is really important to understand accountability. Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe there is a discussion in here about free will versus determinism, right? Like the idea that like, do we have free will or is everything kind of governed in some of the proposed rules assume that one possesses free will to truly debate these complicated matters, to make those decisions, to do all those things. But it's not that simple. And there's just so many contexts and so many variables and so many events at play that are going to contribute to a decision that somebody makes. It's, it's not going to be a singular moment every single time. And we did an episode on free will, and it's not worth, I think, diving into too clearly here. But I think the point is, it comes down to how you define it. Right. And I think once you've defined free will in any way you want to, it eventually becomes a pretty pointless term, which is not to say that like you could define it in such a way that you would everyone would clearly agree we all have free will. You could define it in such a way that everyone would clearly agree that we don't have free will. Right. And either way, once you've landed on a definition, it doesn't matter whether or not we've got free will anymore. Right. And so go back and listen to that episode if you're interested in hearing more about us diving into that in a really more in-depth way. But yeah, I think that conversation does occur in these situations of why we do it is because we had the free will and we are just bad people who were just waiting to have our ugliness exposed or these other situations where we were either coerced into doing it and we were just trying to we we're trying to preserve ourselves against some other aversive outcome or we're trying to please our authority figure to whom we owe some allegiance or we don't know what we're doing because we haven't been given enough context so we think what we're doing is right or we've been sort of persuaded with so much propaganda that we actually shift our attitudes and values such that that behavior then seems, at least for the moment, okay and acceptable and appropriate. Right. So those are kind of the whys, I think, or the answers to why. 
with that, I mean, I think it's worth kind of like wrapping this up, right? Like we're kind of, we're getting it to the end here. So I think, I think it's worth kind of like taking a second to take all the information we shared and break it down into some major points. So I'm going to start with a quote from Stanley Milgram. So quote, ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work become patently clear and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality, relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority, end quote. So basically what he said here was, in those contexts, ordinary people cannot resist authority in a meaningful way when presented with the requirement to commit heinous acts. Stanley sounds like a Nazi apologist to me. <laughs> Take that, Milgram, wherever you're at. So most of us are under the guidance of authority or someone in some capacity, be it family member, educator, supervisor, spouse, probably. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> While these hierarchical systems are essential to many outcomes, we have to consider that they, they need to exist with some kind of restraint, oversight, and reflection. Or, or something there, because there's always the potential for exploitation and an overreaching relationship to take place if you don't have clearly defined boundaries and ethics from the outset and opportunities to have continual conversations about those ethics as our values shift and change over time, which, which is what humans do. Like, we, nothing is static. Like, in, in 20 years, the things that we thought, okay, some of them will probably be like, wow, I can't believe we used to think that was okay. Right. And that's okay that that happens. That's just the nature of culture. It, cultures change. So it's just important to continue to have those discussions. So Gluek points out additionally that his proposed rule allows for consideration of things such as if the accused was, quote, not entirely a free agent, there was no way for him to know definitely that he was violating the laws and customs of legitimate warfare. The illegal order was obeyed under stress at a period of great danger during hostilities or the like. The command required instant obedience in carrying out an act that could not be postponed, end quote. So this might result in differential punishment or like kind of different consequences for subordinates versus superiors. Like you might have a, a more intensive type of punishment for the folks who are rendering the orders or issuing the orders versus the folks that were following it. And that's also subject to debate, right? To what degree should that punishment be allotted depending on who's involved in what context and the morality and the con I mean, there's just so there are just too many variables in a moment to account for that are just going to it's going to be a continuous discussion for the foreseeable future, really. I mean, the bottom line here is that people are dangerous, so avoid them. <laughs> we've been doing that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been doing that for the past year, I guess. Uh, awesome. We're all doing the right thing then. Just kidding. Hey. Ta I like to believe that I am a humanist and that I have humanitarian values. I like to believe that I, ha I have faith in humanity. And sometimes that is tested really hard. Yep. I think the final thing I would say about this is that it's important to understand the nature of how behavior can happen, right? Like this is, it's, it's not that it's condoning one thing. It's just really, this is one way to explain how heinous acts or behavior that's quote unquote out of the norm can occur. This is one understanding and one potential outlook on how this type of behavior shapes up. All right. Shall we recommend some things? Recommendations. Recommendations. All right. So at this point, 
you probably have been wanting something different in your life. You need something different. You are looking out into the world to find something new that you can uh, interact with. And we're here to provide you with those recommendations. That is what we do. We are good at this. Just kidding. So anyway, my recommendation is a book called Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent by author Isabel Wilkerson. This is currently in Oprah's book club. This is about the, I guess, the concept of caste systems, particularly as they relate to the United States, but also in India and Germany. I haven't quite finished it yet, but I'm just absolutely at the time that we're recording this, I will be by the time this comes out, but I'm just really learning a lot. And this is not a feel good read where you read it and you're like, (laughs) yeah, I feel positive. In fact, some parts of it are really horrible because they're accounting events from history that have taken place. But I think the book is is communicating an important idea. is very well and e- very well written and easy to read, and and I think is is just so far been a really good, informative, helpful book. I've added it to my list per your recommendation. Nice, nice. So I also have a book following up on Adolf Eichmann and that whole story that I shared earlier. There is a book that accounts for the entire process, the complicated issues that go that went along with extraditing. Adolf Eichmann from South America to Israel for trial for his eventual execution. And that book is called The Nazi Hunters by Neil Bascombe. What is really cool about this book is it goes, it it really only spans a couple days from the time that the organizations that are involved with extraditing him, they kind of meet up, they declassify a lot of information. And there's a bunch of really cool photos and reports and stuff from that time. And to the extent that they had to go through to get this guy out of the country and bring him to justice is really an incredible feat. It's so many things aligning to make this happen. And it's just really a really interesting and incredible read with a happy ending. Is this book in any way related to the, the Amazon TV show hunters that's about Nazi hunters? I don't know. It might be. Cause I know that there's like, there were different groups that were doing this, but I know that specifically this one story was a, was a really major one. So Okay, I was just curious. Yeah. I had made the recommendation about hunters a, a long time, or a while back at least, last summer, last fall or something, and I was wondering if I didn't realize at the time that maybe it was based on a book, and maybe it was, and this is it, or maybe it wasn't, and it was all new. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? It's worth looking into. All right. Do you have anything else, Shane? Nope, not today. All right. Thank you so much for recording with me today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Justin, for your amazing audio work. Thank you, Alan Kinsella, for your fantastic notes on today's episode. If you'd like to tell us about Nazis or Nazi hunters or books that you like to read, please let us know. And we are happy to share those recommendations with others. If you are just following orders and doing horrible things, then you might be responsible for that. So get out of that situation, please. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, you may be facing trial at some point in your near, near future. If you'd like to share your thoughts on obedience and anything that we may have missed or any suggestions you'd like to make about this topic or any other topic, or if you'd just like to say, hi, I think that you're awesome. We like to hear those sorts of things. Reach out to us on all the social media platforms. You can email us directly at info at www.podcast.com. And we're now on Reddit and all of that. And uh, yeah, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. 
Find us at www.podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Thank you.